Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, along with Bruce Kelly. We have a great guest this week. We're talking to Jamie Hopkins, the Director of Retirement Research at the Carson Group. Jamie's a, a real, real active on social media. He's kind of an expert of all things. He uh, is. We're going to talk to him today about retirement and uh, some of the Biden tax proposals and what that might mean to financial advisors. Hopefully, we're going to talk to him a little bit about uh, that new uh, Carson campus out there and how many times he's been on Ron Carson's jet. And and I know Bruce wants to ask him about <laughs> those Omaha steaks that uh, I guess you get for free. Man, the steak is good there. out there, Jeff. Have you ever <laughs> been to the, uh, before we say hello to Jamie, I've been to the, the Carson, the, the peak meeting, the coaching meeting out there a couple of times, I believe, and and uh, to meet people and everything. And man, the steak out there is outstanding. So yeah, I, I don't, don't want to cut into Jamie's thunder, though, because Jamie I don't, is. I don't get those invitations, Bruce, and I don't eat red meat, so I'm, I'm kind of cut out <laughs> That's of That's right. Pet. You are not uh, a steak eater. Outside the circle, but uh, Jamie, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. Yeah, well, th- thanks for having me on. And yeah, I don't, I, I don't think I'm an expert on anything actually, but I have a lot of interest. So oh, I mean, on. yeah, we'll start there <laughs> now. <laughs> All right, You're a very bright man, Jamie. Give me a break. What are you talking about? Well, Jamie, let's start with the. Uh, th- this is something that caught my eye a week or so ago. You, it was right uh, as we start to un- kind of peel back the layers on the 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 tax proposals coming out of Washington, you had a one of your famous, I don't even know what to call them. You basically hold up a piece <laughs> of the paper that looks like you wrote the stuff on with crayon or Sharpie, and then you just keep flipping through and explaining it all. And it's, it's you can learn a lot in 60 seconds from these, these clips. I recommend, I encourage everyone to follow Jamie on uh, Twitter. Let's, let's kind of break that down a little bit. What, what are some of the things that are like top level for our audience of financial advisors in the, and I know we're we're talking about a working document here but as you see it now yeah so I uh, appreciate that yeah those uh those have been like oddly I don't know if you'd say successful but impactful I've actually seen a couple people now doing the same thing but I I literally and you're right I literally take white pieces of paper and I take a sharpie and I I might write a word or two <laughs> on them and then I mostly one shot what's those, your twitter handle before we oh at Again. retirement risks, at retirement risks. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I've had that handle for a while and I, I still like it. <laughs> right, okay. But, uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, one day I, you know, I just was like, I need something to like grab people's attention. So I started doing those and, uh, I try to one shot all the videos. I will tell you, I, I probably have only had to re-record maybe two videos out of the last hundred I've done. That tax one I did, wow. I could not get it under two minutes and 20 seconds. It took like four attempts and it wasn't, I don't usually mess up a whole lot on them, but I wanted to cover 10 provisions of the bill in, you know, it, it's, you know, two minutes and 20 seconds. And you're like, <laughs> I, it was a lot and I, and you can, but you have to, you realize that you're wasting words on things, right? Like right now. <laughs> Wow, that's an editing thing. Did you get some kind of re- uh, recognition or award for that or what? No, yeah. no, I didn't get any award for that. I was like, that and five, $5 still gets me my large Starbucks. So that's it. <laughs> but yeah, so if you, uh, I'll, I'll start with a couple of different spots as it relates to um, really what I refer to more as like the, you know, the, the Senate Democratic tax bill. It's really not Biden's tax bill. It might end up being called that someday, right? But reality is this doesn't have a lot of the features of what Biden ran on, proposed even back in his budget back in April this year. 
has been talking about through the summer. A lot of those things are just uh, missing from here. The one thing I have been telling a lot of people is right now we have a lot of bills moving through. As you said, this is a working document. A lot of people are dissecting like singular bills and trying to figure out what does it mean. Like we'll talk about some of the retirement provisions in here. And if you looked at that in and of itself in a vacuum, you'd be like, man, they're, they're really not adding any value to Americans in this bill through the retirement provisions. And you can start dissecting the bill and being like, why are they doing this? Well, you have to remember that there's another bill that's already gone through ways and means that is all about expanding retirement access and improving some features, right? That we've kind of dubbed this Secure Act 2.0. Well, when you tie those two bills together, they actually start making a lot of sense. You've got one bill that's designed on expanding access. And this one is really, as it relates to retirement, not adding any additional access, making anyone more secure for retirement. It's about just scaling back some perceived abuses of the tax system as it relates to retirement accounts. That's it. I mean, it's kind of a full stop there. But you have to remember, these are the same people looking at both bills. That's like, that would be like me thinking that like in my day job that I'm working on one project and it doesn't impact another project, right? Like, of course it does, right? I'm thinking about both of those things at the same time. And so is Congress. Same thing as it goes to, you're looking at this is it's tax revenue, it's tax increases. Well, of course it is because they're trying to get an infrastructure bill done elsewhere, even though Senate Republicans are saying these two bills are not tied together so they can vote for one and not the other one. Reality is Democrats are voting for both of these bills at the same time in their minds, right? And that's what's occurring here. So to me, I think you got to look at, you know, there's probably four bills, honestly, right, that are out there that are really all one, one piece of legislation in my mind. So that's one thing. The next part is, you know, this is a tax revenue generating bill. It's the design of it, you know, corporate taxes, capital gains, personal income. And the one thing I would say that kind of, you know, in air quotes, made it from President Biden's talking points and proposals is that line around $400,000 of income. That's very clear in here that that's prevalent, that for single individuals and married filing jointly at $450,000, that a lot of tax increases and limitations will occur after those if this were to pass. I would also bring up that there's a, a much more pronounced marriage penalty inside of this bill than I was expecting. You know, to the extent where, you know, I, I immediately thought of a, a, a client of an advisor that I had helped in the past because I know their situation with 1099 Cap A that being married versus divorced might cost them, you know, if this bill were to pass without knowing where they are today, I was like, that might be a forty dollars or $50,000 additional tax bill for them to stay married. And I'm like, that's at least worth a conversation. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know that that's ever going to be the advisor's recommendation, but it's worth the conversation. <laughs> what, Jamie, what's changing there that makes that that makes it so much more onerous. Why do you call it a, a marriage penalty here? Yeah. So, you know, we did have marriage, you know, the quote unquote marriage penalty. I mean, you're not actually getting penalized for being married. So that's always one important thing to say, right? There's not like, well, you get married and here's a penalty. No, but the phase out ranges on tax benefits, credits, deductions, the when newer taxes kick in are really not doubling in this situation. Tax Cut and Job Act was a lot of that. It was, here's the single rate. If it's 200000 the married filing jointly rate is 400000 Throughout this bill, it's a lot of single filers are 400 married filing jointly is 450 So if you have two high-earning spouses, and you just think about this, you know, 
uh, two spouses that earn $250,000 a year. Well, as single individuals, they're way below any of the single thresholds that were attached to this bill. Married filing jointly, though, all of a sudden they're over. And so in those situations, they're going to lose credits, they're going to lose strategies, they're going to pay higher taxes than they would as single filers. And, you know, that's just a decision that's being made around this. Now, is it possible we see before a final bill some extensions there where we see those 450 go to 600,000? Potentially. Technically, there's still a little bit of a marriage penalty there, um, but you're going to lose revenue, right? Uh, So that's the trade-off if they do, during negotiations, expand some of that out for married filing jointly. It will cost some revenue projections as part of this bill. Thanks. So the the idea is that you should get a divorce to save some of these (laughs) monster tax bills, right? Is that your advice, Jamie Hopkins? Well, so I, I, in all seriousness, when I first read through this, I was in Omaha, I came home and my wife asked me about the trip. And uh, of, of course, without without wanting to know the details of a proposed tax bill, I start going into it. And I actually brought that up to her. <laughs> and I was, you know, it, it, you, you find out if she's overly excited to hear about it. But I was, I told her I was, you know, these are things that, you know, she's an attorney. I work for a financial company. We, we fall into that category of high income, like dual high income individuals. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's something that I, that I told her, I was like, you know, I'll run the numbers. I don't think I want to ever get divorced from you. And I think there's a lot of complexity in life that would occur with kids. You know, these are real conversations that I have. And, you know, I was like, but I will probably run the numbers. And I, I don't know if I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You know, I don't. I don't want to encourage you too much, but uh, to leave me. Can you tell uh, us <laughs> yeah. what the numbers are when I yeah. run them? Yeah, I, I have it yet for us, but oh, okay. I, I would. Yeah, like I will actually run them for our own situation. I haven't yet. Doesn't I don't tend to run a lot of numbers on bills until I know that they're actually going to be passing. So I. That's my, if you actually looked at the last slide, I say, don't overreact yet. Like, I'm not going to go tell clients to do a bunch of things today about this and sell a business to lock in something right now, because we don't know if this is passing. We don't know if these provisions are passing. These are proposed. They don't have the votes as this bill stands yet today, right? The bill that we just saw can't pass. So remember that, right? As it's written right now, this is not a passable bill. It, it, you know, I think if you're putting bets on this, right, you know, more likely than not, uh, you know, you never know for certain, but I'd say more likely than not, we're not at a final bill. There's a lot still to be negotiated. What's your outlook for not this bill, but all of these bills that are in the in motion right now? I mean, where do you see this, the dust settling on this? It looks like we're going to see higher taxes, corporate and individual, right? Is that the kind of the bottom line? Yeah, I would be. I, you would put me in the semi-shocked. I don't know. I'd say fully shocked. I'd be semi-shocked if we didn't see a retirement bill, an infrastructure bill, and a tax bill pass this year. Retirement bill being some expanded options and some cleanup of provisions. The infrastructure, I think, is more or less, you know, in principle agreed upon with a lot of spending over the next decade, and then a tax bill that raises taxes via corporate and individual. Then you get to the details of all of those. Well, those are still to be ironed out in the margins of bills the day before they get passed, right? (laughs) But we have a framework now of things to work off of. 
I think there's a lot in this bill that's that's posturing too, which tends to be the case in D.C. And I think there's a good amount of that in here. I think there's a lot of we, we probably should have just called them like Peter Thiel provisions in here, too. But they're definitely in there, you know, out of news cycle articles and things that have come out in the last year. But I do think that's where the dust settles. I think we're going to see higher taxes. Uh, I do always caution people against that. When I joined this profession now almost 15 years ago, I remember people telling me higher taxes are coming and you fast forward 15 years and we're sitting in a lower tax rate environment than we were 15 years ago. (laughs) And I, I think that's always an amazing thing that people have been telling me that for 15 years. And this would, if you look at everything where some of the spending goes, not everyone's going to pay higher taxes, right? That's also an important thing to remember here is there are you know, proposed credits and the child, you know, some of the the child tax credits that would lower taxes for some individuals. Uh, There's still conversations about, are we going to see a salt, you know, tax deduction come back in some shape or form? Again, could create some people with lower taxes than today. It, It won't be even across the board, right? There will be some people that will pay lower taxes and some people that will pay higher taxes, mostly driven on that $400 and $450,000 lines and above. And then some corporations will see higher rates too. The the corporate rate, you know, I, I was expecting a higher corporate rate uh, at that twenty eight percent that Biden's pretty much talked about three hundred thousand times in the last year and a half, and we got more of a was a twenty six point five proposal. Does that mean that's final? No, but um, it, there was obviously some some downward from expectations there, which I think. If you're a company, a corporation, you're probably happy about that. I don't expect it to go up. If anything, it might come down a little bit. But the, Jamie, the corporate tax rate before the Trump tax cut of a few years ago was 34 percent. Uh, what? Uh, 37? 37. 37. Yeah. So, and then uh, it they, got cut to 21, 22. Yep. So this would be a so tax cut. Now Biden <laughs> wants to bump it up to 26 to 28 or something like that. Yeah, Biden's talked about 28. The bill came out at 26.5. Right. And I tell people that, right? If this bill, as it is today, was passed at the end of 2017 in lieu of Tax Cut and Job Act, this would be a tax cut bill. So <laughs> when you look at it in that regard, you know, it, it's not even going back to where we were in corporate world. Now, I, I think an individual high income earning world, this is actually a tax increase pre-tax cut and job act too. So we're actually going past where we were there and above, but keeping some of the tax cuts for, you know, more middle America income earners. But this would be a tax cut for corporations just four years ago. What what about the uh, Biden's promises that nobody making more than $400,000 a year would see a tax increase? I mean, I don't know if that's holding true at the income tax level, but some of these proposals in here, they seem to be hitting pretty much everyone, like some of the ETF rules, retirement plan programs, what even even uh, I guess, well, not completely related, but crypto cryptocurrency wash sale rules. But what what about that idea of are people being protected under four hundred thousand dollars a year as you see it, Jamie? Yeah, I would I would say that I think under the 400,000 now are you impacted by the bill? Of course you're impacted by the bill. There's not a lot of uh I can't think of anything off the top of my head that's really a I I would view as a pure tax increase below that $400,000 right now. 
range. I'm sure there is one, right? I mean, it's a couple hundred pages and there's probably one or two credits that might get lost for a couple right. of people. But yeah, for the most part, that statement's held true. I mean, they really did draw a line there. I mean, I think okay. it's fair enough to say that there's a line. Now, you brought up, right, are they going to be impacted by things that might cause them additional taxes, like the wash sale rule, if you're going to go trade crypto and you're trying to lock in losses and now you're not going to be able to because you got your 30-day period and then you're making $200,000 a year, $80,000 a year, and now you owe more taxes for your crypto trades. Is that possible? Yeah, that's possible. So we've now drawn up a scenario in which somebody might pay higher taxes. I know we wanted to talk about those wash sale rules, and I'm just going to the two basic points, right, are one, currently today, crypto doesn't fall into the wash sale rules. So you're encouraged to lock in losses or gains at different periods of time, and then almost immediately rebuy into that asset class. Interestingly enough, I think this is a very good thing for crypto, and I know everybody is not on that same page, And uh, but when but I look first, at this, Jamie, yeah. first of all, <laughs> Explain what are, what wash sale rules are and, and yeah. how they work and why they're there. And this is, I think, very interesting because this could, I think, reduce some of the volatility of crypto. But I don't know how you enforce it on a global scale. But anyway, back up to what wash sale rules are and how they work. I agree. That's where I was going with that. So a wash sale rule is basically a regulation that forbids a taxpayer slash investor from claiming a loss on the sale of a asset, we'll just say that since we're talking about crypto now too, and then essentially the repurchase of almost that identical asset. Typically, we're talking about single stocks, but asset within a 30-day time period. So that's essentially what it's saying, right? Is this like wash your hands of it, sell it, rebuy it back right away, lock in a loss, but now you have the same asset from there that can go up, right? And that's uh, the downside of that. If you think about it in the crypto world is when things start to slide, which there's been a lot of volatility in the crypto world, I'm encouraged to sell, right? I'm not encouraged to buy and hold and ride it out. <laughs> as soon as there's a loss, I'm encouraged to sell, lock in that loss and essentially buy back that same uh, crypto asset or you know security or coin almost immediately. Now, what does that cause? What well, causes more trading, right? Buying and selling than you would want to see. It actually kind of encourages you to sell downstream longer and longer than to just buy and hold. So I do agree. I think well, the interesting thing about this change, which then making it so crypto has not been subject to that. So you can buy and sell and lock in losses and gains the same day, essentially, and offset that. There's this encouragement of it, whereas we don't want people to do that a lot with securities. And part of that was manipulation, too, out there in the market that there was concerns about that, which is if you go back in time, why this IRS kind of regulation came about. And if we apply that to crypto, it makes a lot of sense, right? There's a lot of concern from the government about manipulation in the crypto market. And there's actually a lot of research suggesting there's a lot of manipulation in the crypto markets. And there's a lot of volatility. Now, if we can reduce volatility because we're not encouraging people to sell when the market is sliding down, to me, that's a good thing for the crypto world. The other thing that I think is really good for the crypto world is every single time the government, the US, puts a regulation around Bitcoin, around a singular or broad based piece of crypto or digital asset, really, is more digital currency more broadly, it 
legitimizes it one more step every single time. Mm-hmm. And I know that the crypto world feels like it's legitimate already and they don't need that. But the reality is there is a tremendous amount of fraud and abuse going on in the crypto world, you know, whereas most coins fail at this point. And I think that's good for the market uh, as a whole. If it, if it wants to be established long term here, it is a good thing to have regulations around it. Now, probably not regulations that crush it and crush innovation, but regulations in general. So pulling it into even existing ones like this rule, I think is a very good thing. I hadn't thought of it that way. That is an interesting perspective that as the regulators try to keep it at arm's length by adding regulations, it, it brings it into the fold. What, what do you think about the outlook for, for a uh, crypto ETF? And I, I apologize that this is getting a little bit beyond <laughs> your, uh, your uh, expertise. Yeah, this is where <laughs> this is where like yeah, we gotta defer out to my my, my good friends. Tyrone Jeff Voss asks everybody this question. James, Jeremy so Schwartz. He has to ask yeah. you this. this one, you know. <laughs> well, I, I mean, so I, it, there's kind of two hats I could wear and answer this. I mean, this is how I do a lot of things, right? I look at it from like a where does it fit in from a, from an advisor standpoint. It's a great thing. Advisors would love to have an ETF. It makes everything easier. The SEC could go ahead and approve one of the many applications. Clients can get right um, some access to the crypto market without having to get too deep into the weeds. And um, it simplifies the advisor and the wealth management and traditional financial services world life. Do I think there is going to be an approved US one? Yes, there are ETFs that hold crypto elsewhere in the world. There's a lot of applications. I think the SEC will get around to it. I mean, we're getting later in the year. I know some of the the fund providers and people that have uh, applications in front were hopeful for by end of year. I, I have no insight into that. I'm just relaying what people have told me. Whether or not that happens, I don't know. There is a flip side argument in in the crypto world that realistically, if you truly believe in the, and I know everyone doesn't like this term either, but the use case, right? Like if you believe in the underlying function of crypto, there's an argument that it shouldn't be held within funds and ETFs and trusts, that you should actually hold the underlying asset. Because if the underlying asset is going to be what is used and pushed back and forth, you actually shouldn't really hold it in a retirement account either, right? Like I can't use if I put Bitcoin into my IRA and I'm supposed to use that to transact to buy stuff in the future. I really can't, right? Not in a really purposeful way because I, I've got self-dealing rules I've got to deal with there. But that kind of is how you look at it. Now, I would say most of the people that want to use ETFs as an investor and advisor, they're not thinking about it in those terms. They're thinking about, you know, I want some skin in the game on this, right? I just want an allocation towards it. And an ETF makes a very easy way for me to do that. But I'd say those are the prevailing things out there. I do think we'll see ETFs on this side, though. I mean, I just, I, you know, I can't predict how fast the SEC is going to move on that, but I do believe we'll see them. So, Jamie, if you're a purist, then if you're a crypto purist, it's antithetical to you to buy and hold the thing as a commodity or as an investment. You're actually supposed to be out there using it to, as you say, transact. Uh, well, so I don't know if there's, I don't even know if there's anything as a crypto purist anymore. I mean, it's actually one of the challenges of the crypto world is that uh, a lot of these, some some crypto, right, there is actually a company and a stated purpose and smart contracts. 
you know, Bitcoin, it's a challenge of Bitcoin is you can talk to 10 different people who love Bitcoin, invest in Bitcoin, believe in the future of Bitcoin, and they all believe that the use of it is for different things long term, right? I, I think some of the, this is going to disrupt the entire, you know, fiat currency version has died off a little bit, but is it we're going to build technology on top of the blockchain? Is it that we're going to transact with it? Is it a cash uh, reserve type of you know alternative asset? There's a lot of different views out there, but I would say a lot of people in the you know that really dive into crypto would say you actually believe in the underlying technology and asset, and so I don't really want to not actually own it, right? Like if you're buying shares or fractional shares in an ETF or fund. I don't actually own that underlying coin and number, right? Like somebody else owns that and I own really rights to income that might be generated from this long term, which are two very different things. At end of day, I think for a lot of investors, they don't, they don't care about that yet. So I think that ETFs will uh, just absolutely uh, draw in a ton of money <laughs> if they get approved. So yeah, there's a balance out there in the world. But yeah, I know we got off on too. This is more of my speculative side. I'm not, you know, again, we started off with, I'm not an expert in anything. And I would definitely say that's true here. <laughs> you know, Tyrone Ross, you've probably had all before, you know, he's a good friend of mine and I invested in on-ramp, you know, so when I say that I should probably qualify it right too. But I, I'm a believer in this space in general, but I'm I'm not the day in and day out person that I could have been in it. I actually wrote a law review article and published back in 2010 on digital assets and crypto. And if I had just, you know, I had no money then. So um, people are always like, why didn't you invest or put money in then? It's like, because I had just come out of law school and still had $200,000 worth of debt. So there was nothing to... (laughs) There's nothing to put in anything back then. So, um, but I have invested in crypto over the years, and I'm more interested in the companies. Like, same thing, right? Are are there going to be good companies that support crypto and digital assets moving forward? That's actually what where I'm gonna, you know, I, I'm more interested in that part than the underlying coins, to be honest. Yeah the the crypto conversations to me are fascinating. I was sitting in on some uh, Morningstar virtual conference sessions this week and I didn't see one that didn't bring up the topic of crypto and there are so many extremes and uh, perspectives on this and from people that you would think well this this person is managing a you know a billion dollar fund <laughs> they have to have the answer and there's somebody sitting right next to them that has as much money under management and it's the opposite answer so it is I mean this is such an up in the air situation I you know it's always interesting to get all the perspectives on this. So even if you're not an expert, Jamie, we like your perspective on that. Um, I want to ask you about, we, we're kind of bouncing around a little bit, but that's what we do here. The Roth IRA conversions, the backdoor conversions are being, I guess they're shutting the back door. Is that what they're trying to do with some of these, these tax bills? Because, uh, well, tell us why and how. Yeah, I saw somebody uh, tweet this or say it somewhere, and they were like, don't, don't expect anything that's called the backdoor to last forever. <laughs> <laughs> right as it relates to taxes and it the, the the biggest piece here that would impact people almost immediately when we think of backdoor conversions most people nowadays talk about after tax contributions and then converting those after tax contributions to a Roth that is what's going to get shut down if this were to pass it's it's written essentially immediately starting next year so you would have a small window between whenever this passes and presumably 1231 to do some conversions of after tax contributions out there. 
which there would be some opportunity. Some people might have in-service distribution options of after-tax from their 401k, might want to do those, which we've referred to as kind of mega backdoor opportunities. And then really in a, a decade, which is a long time, and there's some, there's some reasons for that, if you kind of understand how these bills are drafted and what they're looking at, which shut down Roth conversions for high-income earners like the rules used to be. So there's kind of two pieces. One is we could still do, to some degree, there's a little bit of backdoor Roth left, which is high-income earner, no qualified plan. I could put money into a, a traditional IRA, then convert it the next day pay the taxes, but I get the deduction on money going in, I get it to a Roth. Okay. I mean, that's still a version of a backdoor. It's much limited from where it is today. But for some people, there would still be a little bit of a backdoor available for another decade. In-plan conversions, to me, is a, you know, uh, could be another backdoor opportunity out there too, depending on how the plan is set up. So there are there are some things that they didn't fully shut it down within the first 10 years if this were to pass, but the limitation of that after tax is, is a big one. I, I was a little bit surprised that there wasn't just an income limitation on that because if I look at it, I would say, you know, I'd still want to encourage people to save as much money as possible if we're under this belief that there's this line at the 400 and 450 and then allow it for people underneath of that to do after-tax contribution conversions. So it's not in there, but I, reading the rest of the bill, I'm a little bit surprised they didn't just draw the line there. It puts after-tax contributions in kind of a funny place if you don't allow for this movement between them and Roth over time. I think that's my biggest, my biggest hurdle with that is it, it just kind of makes it messier, to be honest long-term, just for tracking a basis and understanding what's after tax, what's, there's a lot of simplicity in allowing that to move to Roth over time. Uh, personally, I would much rather just see us get rid of these contribution phase-out limits for, for Roth and uh, traditional IRAs, increase the contribution amounts to them to make them look more like 401ks and maybe even raise them up and just have one flat dollar amount. You can put in you know, 65 grand a year into retirement accounts across the board, period, end of conversation. And you're like, okay, I mean, that makes sense, right? I, I've i simplified it uh, tremendously. I'm not sure advisors would love that uh, <laughs> right. long term because it would make, uh, you know, funding all this stuff, you just get rid of all the complexity. I don't think we'd see a substantial change in wealthy people saving or, you know, where they're putting their money, but I think it would make everything a lot easier. Why can't they just get rid of conversions altogether? So why don't you want to get rid of conversions altogether? There's a great answer for that one, because you would reduce perceived tax revenue. <laughs> so uh, the, the great thing about conversions is bills look at the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And the reason that you look at a bill and you say, why are they getting rid of conversions in 10 years? Well, it's because if they got rid of conversions today, they would reduce perceived tax revenue when they go through this process and they're trying to increase tax revenue so they can spend more. So if they decrease tax revenue by getting rid of that, when they do the 10 year projection, they've harmed their whole case on how are we going to raise tax revenue and spend more? Yeah, but and, they're, they're yeah. still getting the tax revenue. They're just getting it at a different time. Because Correct. It, okay. Yeah, but you'd get it outside of, a pr presumably, you're, you would get less of it in the next 10 years. Right. So when you look at the impact of the bill and what you can spend, you've now reduced what you can essentially spend during your projection time period. 
And yeah, equivalently, it should be the same, right? Whether we collect it now or in the future, it really shouldn't matter. But when Congress is drafting bills, they're thinking about the time period in which they're going to do the budget impact. And to me, that's exactly why we got to we end conversions in 10 years because we want a bunch of conversions to occur over the next 10 years. So we get that tax revenue today. I don't want to encourage a lot of people to set tax revenue in year 11 when I, I now don't see any of that. Right. So so Congress created and enabled conversions because they want to finance their own spending. But when people take advantage of those conversions, they're demonized. I don't get that. Yeah, it's it's not so much, you know, it's still not so much the conversions, right? What you see here is like they're still going to allow conversions, but just phased out for high income earners, um, which, uh-huh. again, I, you know, I, I don't know if in eight years that would ever stay in or somebody will come in in eight years and remove that provision and say, hey, I just created more tax revenue. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um But they didn't change the rules, but now the bill looks as if you created more tax revenue. Yeah. Well, looking at it from the financial advisor perspective, what's the appeal of a conversion? I'm always balancing this because like most people, I have a Roth and a traditional IRA. You know, I'm wondering where I should contribute most to if I can't max them both and when when and if I should convert. And it's all a guessing game that, but you can always assume, I guess, that taxes are going to be higher in the future. But ideally, if I'm retired, maybe my income will be lower. So what's the what's the financial advisor perspective on these conversions? Well, my I have two views here. One is I think from an advisor standpoint, when you're talking to most clients, my standpoint is you need tax diversification. We cannot predict at all whether tax rates are going to be higher or lower in the future. As I said, for the last 15 years, people have been telling me how, hey, tax rates are going to be higher, right? Well, we've just ran through a 15-year time period where tax rates got lower. So honestly, like we weren't very good at that, right? And I don't think we're very good at predicting where tax rates will be in 15 years from today. They could be higher. They could be lower. We could be to a just to a complete wealth tax. I don't know, right? I have no idea where taxes are going to be there. There's a, a, a minor wealth tax built inside of this bill. And if that occurs, it doesn't matter whether you convert it or kept it. Otherwise, if we just start taxing, you know, assets versus if we tax, you know, income and realize gains. So we could see any of those shifts, which is why I just get back to tax diversification. When we don't know what the future holds, the best thing we can do is diversify our risk by having after tax money, tax deferred money, Roth money, long term capital gains money, right? Money that gets step up in basis, money that doesn't get step up in basis. And then when we have diversification across different assets and different taxation, I've now minimized the risk of changing laws in the future, right? My legislative risk has been minimized to some extent. And that is really the best argument for if you're trying to deal with that risk that you have to diversify, just like we diversify in other areas. Now, flip side is, right, if you're trying to generate the maximum possible amount of wealth, diversification doesn't do that typically, right? You have to take more risk on. And that's where I I more fall into the, you know, uh, I I would prefer in general, I fall in, you know, if I was going to have to force an answer that I believe taxes are going to continue to go up. When I look at budget, when I look at US spending, demographics, I think spending is going to go up. So I think taxes are going to go up. So if all else is equal, I would rather be an all Roth 
than anything else. And sometimes people get mad at me for saying that. I think I've written it in my book, Rewirement, too, that everything being equal today, I would have all of my assets in a Roth account. There's nothing in this bill that changes my mind on that either, (laughs) except for perhaps those like massive RMDs if you end up with 20 million (laughs) or more in your Roth accounts. But, uh, you know, that's a big negative as it relates. Uh, But it's, it's, it's actually painful for for both aspects, uh, just having a lot of money. And that's a big argument for tax diversification. But yeah, I like Roth. The other thing I like about Roth, which um, is more behavioral, when I think about retirement, I would like to know how much money I have for retirement. When I look at a 401k or a traditional IRA, I have no much, I have no idea how much somebody has for retirement because is your effective tax rate 45% or zero? I don't know. If you have a million dollars and your effective tax rate is 45%, you have six, you know, whatever, $550,000 that's yours and $450,000 that's the government's. And if you have a million dollars and your effective tax rate is zero, you have a million dollars. Well, you can spend twice as much as the other person can, and you both have the same amount in your account. I, you know, that's, uh, you know, which is why, like Roth, if you have a million dollars, presumably under today's rule, you have a million dollars, right? Period. So I know what I have for retirement. I know what I can spend. I don't have to think about what I'm going to have to pay quarterly taxes on. I have my spending amount. And I like that when it comes to retirement and income planning, that it does simplify it a lot for the individual. So with back in Tax Cut and Job Act, there was some conversations about Rothification and moving everything to Roth. And the, you know, I, I actually would say, I think from a behavioral, from a mental, from an ease of retirement, that's probably a net good thing, everything else being equal, which is a way for me to just put an asterisk next to it. <laughs> well, my, my, one of my fears of Roth has always been that as those pools continue to grow, that Congress is going to figure out a way to get their meat hooks into it. I just I, I can't imagine they're going to leave that money alone. Well, yeah, and I think that's a fair concern. I think the concern, though, from me is I don't expect, nor have we really seen a proposal in Congress to tax the Roth accounts. What we see is very much akin to this bill, which is force out RMDs, you know, subject Roths to RMDs while we're alive. I I actually think that makes sense. It's probably the right public policy decision. This one mega, you know, IRAs for, with high income earners force out RMDs of Roths first, right? Because you're reducing down the tax benefits. So you're moving it to something taxable or you're spending it. I That's really what we've seen proposals around. Again, is it possible that they go chase this at some point? It is. I, I don't think there's any lobbyists on that side. So there, there is always that. Sometimes you those are negative things for people, but like, AARP would not be very happy about taxation of Roth accounts. So you do have lobbyists on the flip side here that actually would fight against that. But, you know, RMDs on Roth, there's not a whole lot of people fighting against that because honestly, it probably better aligns things to other other policies that we have. Okay. Bruce, anything else for uh, Jamie Hopkins? You want to talk to him about uh, Omaha, the Carson campus, the Carson jet? Yeah, Jamie, I just wanted to know, uh, I guess, you know, you're with the Carson Group and Ron Carson is the head of that, of course. You've had a lot of changes recently. They have new, Ron has new investors on board, right? And he also, what, last year opened a brand new campus out there in Omaha, Nebraska. I just wanted to ask you 
about that and how the, you know, the new campuses and, and the new investors and any kind of changes or what's going on at Carson Group? Yeah. So we'll go, we'll, we'll shift that tax world and talk a little bit about the, I guess this is our industry and profession, right? So, you know, I joined Ron and the team here at Carson three years ago. I was at American College for almost seven years and I joined up here and headed up our retirement pieces and our coaching company, which I still head up. And then I, I moved on to our exec board back in, in May, kind of right during this process. Uh, we had a, a great investor that well preceded me being here that helped Ron kind of get Carson Group up and going. And then we went through a whole big process and ended up with Bain Capital as our, you know, essentially the swap out of that. Which was an amazing experience to go through. You know, I started off in the PE world, but I was never on the kind of company side, right? I was always looking at deals on the other side. And obviously, Bain's a big name. And, you know, as Ron said a bunch of times, we were looking for capabilities, not cash. It wasn't a cash out for the firm. It was getting, you know, kind of swapping out a PE firm that we had outgrown the capabilities of. And that's been really amazing, just kind of you know, it's a different level. I mean, it's just not to put anyone down in this space, but, you know, they have a different level of expertise than a lot of people do here, like me included, <laughs> right? I sit in meetings with, you know, them and they're, you know, they, they've also, worked, how do you uh, mean? Yeah, like a broader, a broader view of things, right? You know, I haven't, I don't know what a lot of companies are doing in different areas, different areas of the world that are leading edge there. And they there was a really good comment that like being in our industry right now is really exciting because we're so far behind the rest of the world. <laughs> and, and a great example is that like we're just getting to right uh like client reviews, right? <laughs> and testimonials. Like think about that. You know, that that's been so standard as a way to vet places for 15, 20 years. And we're just getting there as a profession. Our marketing is so far behind the rest of the world because we're so highly regulated. But a fun thing about that well, is that's that, for sure. Yeah. Like it's it's so far, right? Like we're not even in ballpark. We don't do anything fun or exciting. Um, when you think about like the best ads on TV, and this is not a shot at them, it's actually a great ad. I, when I think of the best ad I've ever seen is probably the Fidelity savings ones. And I'm like, but man, like that's not a that's not a leading cutting edge ad, right? <laughs> like it, it's like a block falling and that's as good as we we have in our whole space. And it's a great ad, right? It was effective. But they said something along the lines of, right, being in our being in this space is like getting next year's newspaper today. In that we can look in other industries and we know what's working there and we can apply that to this industry. And so it's kind of like having a time machine, right? Like just from technology, marketing, all of that. And I, I find that really like refreshing and interesting to see. Um, so that's well, obviously... What are, what are yeah. some of the things in marketing that have been mentioned from Bain? That, yeah, I mean... You know, that uh, large enterprises and RIAs like, like Carson Group could be looking... Yeah. So I think one big thing, and this has been discussed in our space, and there's probably two-ish firms, I think, that have gotten there, or at least close to, that, uh, you know, I very much believe, and I think, you know, Ron said this before, too, and, and Bain obviously invested, so they they see this, too, that we're going to have a, a handful of household name RIAs, and that that brand building and that investment into that is really important from kind of marketing and client and lead generation long term. 
And part of it, it really, Ron came from it originally is the, the idea of trust, right? And that you kind of trust people, you know, that that's so core to what we do. But if you don't know somebody's name, you've never heard of them, like you're starting from ground zero on trust. Whereas, you know, Fidelity's done a good job in the 401k market that there's an inherent level of trust for a lot of employers when they see 401k Fidelity, right? They, they go to that when you see, you know, and, and you could take that to other professions and other industries, but there obviously is a, an aspect of that. It's very hard to build, but I think that's going to have to occur in the wealth management RIA space. I think you know, actually getting, I guess, a little sexier. I don't know if anyone else has used that word, but on, on marketing, I think that's going to have to occur in this space. We're just TikTok. If you looked at some of those data points from last year, I think that was the number one most downloaded app. It's, I think for, you know, the, the younger 20 something that was like listed as the single most trusted source for financial advice last year. You know, industry's not uh, chasing that now, like we're off of that, we're missing. Well, like it. you said, but there are these huge regulatory barriers and hurdles, right? Um, yeah. And, and look mean, at the game. Look at the uh, Robinhood, and Robinhood tried to shake things up, or has tried to shake things up, and now they're, you know, running into yes. all kinds of problems, <laughs> right? And issues with gamification and and marketing and and the like. So yeah, no, I don't I think mean, the SEC or Finra is going to change. You know, and, no, I I don't think so either. Right, the. Uh, I mean, the, those have been set up to, you know, in the eyes of the government to protect consumers, right? And right. I mean, uh, actually, you can argue that it's actually done a fantastic job here in the United States overall in protecting consumers. Now, I don't know everyone agrees on that either. A lot of people hate the SEC, but I, I, I often tell people, I mean, we do, we do have one of the best legal systems in the world, if not the best. And yes, you, might not, you might not feel that way, but uh, it, it is. And uh <laughs> Uh, it's uh, more or less, uh, in my view, a fact, not an opinion on that one. Yeah. And uh, so I, I do, I like the SEC and what other people have done, even if I don't like every decision. The uh, other things you brought up, you know, uh, the, the new office building is really cool. Obviously, I live outside Philadelphia, but I've been there a lot. It's uh, really beautiful. And for Omaha, you know, Ron's very cognizant of investing back into our community. So what we're doing from nonprofit standpoint, the last two years is huge. Having the foundation that he set up there, Dreamweaver 2, having a beautiful campus, you know, giving back, you know, we give days off for the community service that people do there in Omaha. That's all important. So having that presence and, and that goes against a lot of people now too, where we have this movement of everyone needs to be virtual everywhere. And it's uh, not, you know, we do have a lot of virtual people like myself, but we also believe in that community aspect, um, both locally and nationally. And not every firm is uh, in that same mindset anymore. I've also only been on the plane once. I know people ask me that a lot. Uh, I fly, <laughs> I, I fly, I fly on American most of the time. I'm, I'm not on the plane. So, <laughs> all right, that's great stuff. Yeah, it's uh, you know. I'll, I'll close with kind of two two comments just from my side here. You know, I think for any advisor that's made it now through this whole thing of us rambling in different topics is, you know, I think this is the the most exciting time that, you know, I've ever been in our profession, just from impact, the number of people who need help, the, the we've got the fewest client facing advisors we've ever had since I've been alive. And we have the most people with the most amount of wealth that have ever needed help. And there's probably more complexity now than ever, right? We're talking about crypto assets, changing laws, you know, the globalization of almost everything. 
And the SEC, as you said, is not going away. Regulations aren't going away. And we have to play with all of this stuff in a client's best interest moving forward. It's a lot, but it's also so interesting and impactful. And honestly, I think we can make a bigger impact than we ever could before. So the value proposition for those who are here and committed to this profession is unlike anything it's ever been before. So that should get everybody really excited when they wake up in the morning. It gets me excited. Yeah, well, like you said, you know, this the the whole global nature of everything. I mean, the the new investor in the Carson Group is Bain Capital, which is a global private equity shop, right? So, yeah, and, that uh, ten years ago didn't happen. <laughs> that, that's <laughs> yeah. a brand new thing, you know. So that to me, as as a as a reporter on this industry, to me, that's extremely significant and interesting. Yeah, that's their first investment into the wealth management business right. too, right? right? Which is a big deal. I mean, it's a, they're a very big, well-known firm. They've they've invested in a lot of companies, and uh, I know I know sometimes I read the articles, and I it, it's funny though being part of a company, and it's not like I comment on every article, and I read some of them, and I I really quickly realize a lot of people actually don't know our business very well, which is an interesting thing. They don't always know exactly what Carson does. They don't seem to know the industry as well as sometimes I think they do. <laughs> right. So it's, uh, it's uh, I think there's a lot more interesting things going on inside companies like Carson and others out there today that a lot of people kind of sitting on the side don't fully grasp right now. So if you're not kind of pushing that and learning about it, I think in the next two to three years, you're going to feel a little bit behind where some of these other people like us are are charging towards right now. Okay, Jamie. Well, thank you very much. Jeff, anything for else for Jamie? No, that's, that's great stuff. Thanks a lot, Jamie. Yeah, this was wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for everyone out there making their, uh, their own lives and their clients' lives and everybody else's lives better. All right, Jeff, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. If it's Monday, it's time for another podcast, of course. We want to say thank you to our guest, Jamie Hopkins from the Carson Group. We also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our producer. You can find the podcast at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. You can reach out to Jeff on Twitter via at Benji Ryder, me on at BD News Guy. Stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week. Mm-hmm.